Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. This morning we're going to attempt to look at the entire book of Jonah. Of course, we won't go exactly verse by verse like we always do, but we continue and we're almost finished. We're very close to being finished. We'll see the finish line in sight for our series on God's providence. In fact, next week, Lord willing, will be the last sermon in that series, the last week of the year. I promise you that will be the case, and there'll be 15 sermons, and so this time I actually got it right. Now, I'm going to short some of the sermons as I'd hoped, but uh, hopefully this has been edifying to you. Uh, it's definitely what I needed in my juncture of life right now. God needed to remind me every day that He is sovereign and providence and all these ways, and He is good. And so we'll, get, we'll strike the chord one more time, and then next week wind up at Christ. And that beautiful hymn in Colossians remind us that Christ is the Lord of all, and that all these things, Jonah included, as we'll see today, point ultimately and find their fulfillment ultimately in Him. So let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by His Spirit, Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read the first chapter. We'll read the whole thing. It's less than 50 verses, but in due time as we walk through this, we'll read it. But chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Ha ha. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. We may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, <clears throat> Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? Where is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard and to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he bind this reading of it to our hearts. Let's pray. God, what a story. Give us eyes to see your greatness and your goodness. And for those of us who are fleeing from you this morning, give us grace to return to you. In fact, we would pray that you draw us irresistibly and effectually to yourself. Oh God, do in us what you alone can do for us. 
Build your kingdom for your glory. Edify your saints. Convict the lost. Convict the found in ways they need to, Lord. And do all these things. That in this hour you might be glorified. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, the late James Montgomery Boyce told a, well, a story of a well-known, well-known agnostic defense attorney, Clarence Darrow. You may know Clarence Darrow, that name from the Scopes Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee, down near where I come from. In 1925, he was an agnostic, the atheist defender who, uh, who sought to undo the teaching of creation in our schools. In this case, he defended two Chicago homosexuals who were accused of murdering a man. And as it became very clear that they, as evidence was presented, that they had murdered this young man, it became abundantly clear from anyone who was watching, Clarence Darrow said, as one particularly damning testimony was given, Darrow said this. He said, why a person could as easily believe this man's testimony as he could believe that the whale swallowed Jonah. Well, in Dayton, Tennessee, that's not a good thing to say. Because as it turned out, there are a lot of people on that jury who believe that the whale swallowed Jonah. And of course, the two men were convicted, found guilty. But the words he used that day, the mocking of the historicity of Jonah, became a rallying cry for many, many liberal so-called Bible scholars who denied the truthfulness of Jonah. So very quickly, there have been basically, there are today, basically three different approaches to Jonah. One, there's, there's those who believe Jonah is an allegory, that the details of this, this fictional story, it's a cute fictional story, and the details all represent something. They have some symbolic spiritual value. This never happened, of course. We know that People don't survive inside the belly of a big fish, a whale, or whatever it was for three days. So, but it has spiritual value. If it means something to you, then that's good. It's an allegory. Second way, and this is probably the most prevalent way, and I've, I've encountered this myself, is that it is a parable, a fictional parable. I think this is common. Again, Jonah is a, a, a fictional tale, but it communicates moral truths, and that's valuable to us, and so we appreciate the moral significance of Jonah. So that's probably the most popular among Bible scholars worldwide today. Probably, I don't know, 70%. And then there's those of us who believe that it is historical, prophetic narrative. And that's probably everybody in this church. So I'm not going to assume it is everybody. You're probably going to go, yeah, that's me. <laughs> but, but I'm assuming that's most of us. It certainly is me. And that's to say that Jonah was a real man who existed in time and space and he was literally, swall- literally swallowed by a big fish, just like the story says. Swallowed by a big fish, lived in the belly three days and three nights, vomited out of on dry land. It's disgusting, but it's true, right? If we know ourselves, again, no God and know ourselves, we're, we're all fish vomit, right? <laughs> Saved by God's grace, but I won't gross you out anymore. We'll get to that momentarily. But it's true. As Adrian Rogers once said, I believe... I'd believe God if he said, Jonah swallowed the whale. And I would, (laughs) because this is the word of the Lord. And that's why we say that every Sunday. And I believe it. I believe it because it's the word of God, but I also believe it because Jesus believed it. Jesus evidently believed, as we'll see a bit later, that Jonah was a real person. He was literally swallowed by a big fish. Lived three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And I hope you've learned, if anything, if nothing else, you've learned here at Christ Fellowship, if the scholars disagree with Jesus, go with Jesus every single time, okay? If you get nothing else out of this, get that. Go with Jesus every time, okay? I think we know that, but it's just a good reminder in the, in the event we do not. But for obvious reasons, I mean, when most people, even Christians, think of the little book of Jonah Jonah, by the way, is the fifth of 12 of the minor prophets. It's called minor because they're in, not because they're insignificant, because they're smaller than, say, Isaiah and Zechariah and the others, but one of the smaller, uh, or, or, or Jeremiah and the others. 
But they think it's a story about a big fish. But I want to argue this morning that it is a story about a big God. Yeah, the fish is kind of cool, and it's kind of cute, and we can put that on our nursery walls, you know, right beside the Noah, which I love to point out, and my wife always gets on to me for ruining people's nursery scenes. You know, it's like, hey, you've got a picture of God's wrath right here on your wall, right? We had it too, so, you know, but you just like to point that out. Nothing like a theology person to ruin everything for everybody, right? Just rain on your parade. But Jonah is about God. It's about the covenant God. I mean, because Jonah is going to learn the true character of God, the covenant God whom Jonah had served as a prophet earlier in his life. Jonah's a prophet, a Jewish prophet. God is the central actor, as we're going to see in Jonah. Not the fish. You love the fish. You love fishing like my son does here. You like the fish, like a big fish tail back and down in Georgia. Man, we tell some big fish tales. I've even told him some fish tales. None of them are true, of course. Grossly exaggerated. But this is a big fish tale, but it's about God isn't it? Well, if you don't know, we're going to see. Because here in chapter 1, 1 to 3, Jonah disobeys God, and then this story turns into a real-life parable. This is a real-life parable. It's a parable, yes, but it's in real life. It's really happened. About evangelism and the sovereignty of God. We've read that book. You've read that book, I trust. You were in a small group, right? You read that book? You're shaking your head like you read the book, you know, every week. You've got a small group today. Read the book, right? But it's about evangelism and the sovereignty of God, as we shall see. We'll get there. So we see here in these first few verses, God commissions what we would call a rebellious prophet. Now, we've got to be quick, not quick to rush judgment to Jonah. Let's be very, very careful about this. We encounter this rebel. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call it against it, for the evil is great. great their, their evil has come up before me. So go preach the gospel. And what does Jonah do? Well, he flees. Immediately, there's no, I mean, this is just quick, quick, isn't it? He just flees, goes to Tarshish, this Jewish prophet. What is his problem? Some of you seminary guys, so what's his problem, man? I didn't, I didn't run to like, you know, I didn't run to South Florida to come into Louisville or somewhere opposite. I went to Louisville, right? It's the call of God in your life, man. Come on, Jonah. There's a very particular reason why Jonah was offended by this call on his life. Nineveh was the last capital of Assyria. If you know anything about Old Testament Jewish history, you know that Assyria and the Jews were mortal enemies. Jonah ministered in the 8th century AD, but a few years after this, Assyria is going to attack and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and, 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 and completely bring it into that northern kingdom where there's only one kingdom left, Judah, Right? The two tribes. There's ten tribes of Israel in, in the northern kingdom, but, and Assyria will destroy that. This is about 60 or 70 years, some, give or take some, a, a few decades before that. I mean, God used, an, as we read Israel, or Isaiah and some of the other prophets, we learn that God used Assyria as an instrument of judgment on God's idolatrous, rebellious people. And so Jonah, knowing this, hating the Ninevites, they're his mortal enemies, for of course, their ethnicity, you say racism here, yeah, that's exactly right. So Jonah flees to Tarshish, which most scholars think is located somewhere where modern-day Spain sits today. In the ancient world, this was about as far from Nineveh as you could possibly go. You'd sail, they think, at that time off the end of the earth if you went further than where Spain is today. So he went as far as he could get from God. And that's why I said, huh. When I read, he's fleeing from the presence of God. I mean, think about this. How audacious, how absurd it is to think you can flee from the presence of God. And that's a lesson for us, isn't it? Think about Psalm 139. We did, uh, did a sermon on that a few months back before we started, before we began the, the Providence series. The psalmist says, if I go up from the heavens, you're there can't go to heaven and get away from you. The heavens up to the sky, I can't get away from you, God. If I make my bed in the depth and she old in the grave, even there you are. And your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. In other words, I can't get away from God. You see the absurdity and a little bit of humor here, right, Jonah? <laughs> Where are you going, Jonah? 
be so fast to condemn him. We'd say, yeah, I know. I, I would have surrendered right there and said, man, I want to be called into ministry. I'm going to go preach. I want to see revival, man. I pray for revival all the time. We shouldn't be so fast to condemn Jonah. Why? Because this is who we are. Jonah is us in this story. I hope you know that, right? It's about God, but we're Jonah. I think Jonah represents all because by nature, and yours are the seeker-sensitive church, I think gets it wrong. Well, they do a lot of good work and their motives, I think, are wonderful, but they get it wrong because we are not seekers after God. I would argue we are fugitives from God by nature. I've got to go find a seeker. Well, come and tell me when you do. When I share the gospel with people, I don't find seekers. I find people who want to reject what I'm saying, but they don't like it at all. You're a sinner? Huh. I've never had anyone come to me and say, I'm looking for God. You're a pastor. Can you show me the way to God? Now, I've never had that happen. Never. Maybe you have, and you can, good, good if you have, but that usually doesn't happen because we're fugitives from the presence of God. Even after we come to Christ, I think sometimes we're fugitives. I mean, you who called a ministry. Man, I ran from it for a long time because my brother was a missionary. said, if you can run from it, run from it. And if you do, then you weren't called. But if you can't, well, he's got you. And he drew on Jonah, and he was absolutely right. We tend to resist the call of God. We, we tend to flee from the call of God. Even those of us in call, God may call us to share the gospel with someone. We feel a very strong impression that this is a lost person. We're sitting by them on the bus or on, on a plane or, uh, so, or at, a, at a family gathering and we don't do it. We run from God, don't we? We don't want to embarrass. We'll think we're one of those people, those radicals, you know. We tend to run from God. We, we see this in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? God comes looking for them. What happens? They hide. They flee, right? They, they, they disobey God. But look at the created order. Look here in chapter 1. Look at the created order. What does it do? Well, it obeys God. God hurled a great wind. What did the wind do? The wind said, I'm not going to go and blow on that, that ship. No, the wind did it. It did its job. It did what God called it to do. He appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. Does the fish rebel? I don't think so. I'm not in the mood for humans today. I've got a taste for tuna, Right? Tuna, maybe today. No, I don't think I want a man. Come on. No, he went and swallowed Jonah. He, she, it, whatever it was. I think it may be, this may have been a miraculous fish. Appointed. God appointed this fish. He may have chosen a fish, kind of like a, being in a strange way, elect fish. <laughs> but I think he may have, it's possible given the language here in the Hebrew, he may have actually sort of supernaturally made this fish. I don't think it had bunk beds inside or anything like that. But I think he, I don't know. We don't know for sure. The pagan sailors, what's going to happen to them? What are we going to see? They're going to repent in the face of God. What does Jonah do? He runs. He runs. So God sends this big storm. And what's Jonah doing? Well, first of all, he's callously asleep in the belly. Not of the fish yet, but of the ship, right? Snoozing. He's not worried about anything. He's successfully fled from the presence of God. So the sailors, the, and this must have been one wicked storm. These are veteran sailors, and for them to be this frightened, it must have been the perfect storm. You've seen that movie. It must have been like that. They're scared to death. And they say, what's, who? And they have a sense of providence. I mean, they, of course, they have this great pantheon of gods, and so they've got a sense of maybe the god of the sea is angry at them for some reason, for somebody on board. They have a sense of sin of, of some sort. They said, this is happening because of somebody here on board. I wonder who it is. Cast lots, and who's, who's in charge of the lot? Who's in charge of rolling the dice? Well, it's God, and it lands on Jonah, and of course, you know what happens. He gets the, after trying to throw some other things overboard, that doesn't calm the storm. It makes it worse. God is not happy, and they throw him overboard. God appoints a fish, and it comes and swallows Jonah, but they, the sailors worship God. They make, they make an offering to God, right? Were they converted? Possibly. I'm not totally sure. We don't really know, but I mean, maybe. I mean, they cast lots. Jonah's disobedient. Jonah admits it. Then he makes it clear that he's a Hebrew who serves God. And by the way, God made both the sea and the dry land. And we need dry land right now. So let's get rid of this guy. You know, we have a saying, don't we? Who's the Jonah here when something's going wrong in your business maybe or, you know, or in your family? We need to find Jonah and throw him overboard. I've said that before in ministry. I think I meant it at the time. 
probably have too about certain. We need to find Jonah, throw him overboard, get rid of this troublesome person. Well, Jonah was a troublesome person because he was rebelling against God, and this is what happens. This is judgment. When we rebel against God, what happens? God doesn't, well, you know, old, you know, old, old Byron, he's a good guy, he's a good soul, I love him, he don't mean anything by it. Oh, we say that. Sin and Jeff's sin, Lisa's sin, our sin will be judged, right? Rebellious God, maybe not now, but it'll be judged, right? He takes sin very seriously. So God, he, he, he sends the fish to swallow up Jonah. I'm going to argue rescue Jonah. Because what happens when Jonah gets overboard? Bang, stops. Just like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, peace be still in nature, which he created, says, be still. Unlike Jonah, it obeys, right? The voice of its creator. And this happens here. So God appoints the fish, it swallows Jonah, and I'm going to argue that is rescue. That is not judgment. The storm is judgment. I think we're going to learn this from the prayer here in chapter 2. But it's rescue through fish vomit, through the fish. This is the rescue that comes to Jonah. It cries out to God from the belly of the fish, chapter 2. Let's, let's read uh, chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. He's in the belly of the fish. He prayed to the Lord God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that's the grave, I cried. You heard my voice. He's crying out from, from, from the sea. And you cast me into the deep. So he cried out, cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. So there's the judgment. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm, I am driven away from your sight. And then he's confident in the grace of God, isn't he? Yet again, I will look. Upon your holy temple, the waters close in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me again. That's the judgment. The waters are going to kill him, right? He's going to drown. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Death. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. How do you do it? In the fish, right? You brought me up out of the water because he's in the fish. He's alive. He's well. He's talking to God. Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. He has a strong, high view of God. He's holy. He's in his holy temple. He's up there. He's his only hope for survival, for rescue. And he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who don't worship you, they forsake their only hope, he's saying. The exclusivity of this Covenant God, you see Jonah believes it. He has sound doctrine, of course. What I have vowed, I will pay. And then he says this. This is the thesis for the entire book. This is the thesis for the entire Bible. Right here. One beautifully crafted sentence. Salvation belongs to, say it. Say it louder. The Lord, as those who have been redeemed, you know, don't you, salvation belongs to the Lord and then what happens God says vomit and it vomits not Jonah but the fish right and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land entire thesis of the book salvation belongs to the Lord I would argue that's the, the thesis of the entire Bible right there you are hopeless, you've gone down to the bars of death, and your only hope is to look up and cry out to the one who made you, the one in whose hands you are, and the one who, to, to whom you will one day give an account and say salvation belongs to the Lord. And those of you who are redeemed, you've done that by God's grace. The Lord speaks to the fish. The Lord relents and rescues Jonah. He's now on dry land. So the fish turns out to be a vessel of salvation. It's kind of like Noah's ark, right? He's on there, he's in there, but it's really, really gross, I'm sure, down there. <laughs> right? Probably really, really gross on the ark, too, with all those animals. And you know what happens to animals, what they do. You have a dog that you have to walk. Maybe you don't walk. <laughs> so it's like Noah, he rescues Jonah. 
And so in chapter 3, Jonah gets a second chance. He's the God of grace and mercy and second chances. Surely Jonah's going to go, I feel called to the Lord. I mean, he's rescued, but it doesn't last long, does it? Oh, we are so fickle. Remember those early years after you got saved, how excited you were to tell people about the gospel? And now how hesitant you are to tell people about the gospel? Oh, how fickle the human heart is. So God commissions Jonah again. We see it here. And what happens? Well, revival comes to Nineveh through this unlikely, rebellious, hesitant, to say the least, prophet. And this tells us, beloved, that God always gets what he wants. Always. Always, always, always. And that should comfort you. If you're in the belly of the fish, you're in the belly of the sea right now in your life, God always gets what he wants. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. So chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Same thing. Same calling. That great city, it's massive city, three days to walk, uh, to, to, to walk one end to the other, one wall to the other probably. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. Faith, do you believe God? Do you really believe God? Faith comes to Nineveh this day. Saving faith, salvific faith, effectual faith. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth to show repentance, to show sorrow and hatred of their sin, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Revival. Revival, great awakening comes to Nineveh. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. Broken over his sin, the, the depths of his sin, he cries out from the depths of his sin, a convicted sinner will issue a proclamation and publish it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them all repent, even the animals. He's going all the way here, right? Let the cattle repent. I'm not sure the cattle need to repent, but it's stressing the the the, the uh, the comprehensive nature of this revival and let them call out mightily to God let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands and that's all of us all of them and it's all of us who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish they're not saying God will because they're not assuming that God owes them anything. They're casting themselves entirely upon his mercy. Perhaps God will relent. They're not presuming. They're not saying, well, God owes us something. We'll do our thing and he'll do his thing. I've heard evangelicals say that. Well, we believe God does. You do your thing and then he does his thing. That's one tell me that this summer. Who's been in church 40 years. Well, you do your thing, God does his thing. I think they meant something better than what that sounded like. No, God owes us nothing. Perhaps he will relent. Of course, we know he did. Because when God saw that, what they did, God, how they turned from their evil way. This is not news to God, by the way. God's bringing this about. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Repentance is conditional, right? You will undergo judgment. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God chooses the elect. Yes, all that's true. So is the conditional nature of repentance. If you repent, then you will be made right with God. If, you've heard me say maybe the most important word in all of Scripture, one of the most important small words is if. If, don't presume on God's grace. You're maybe, maybe you're my children, you're a pastor's children, you've been in church your whole life, but still the call is repent if. You will be saved if you Repent. Not if you grew up in the right home or the right country, the right region of the country. Repent. 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 
Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And God grants them repentance. We learn from the New Testament, God grants repentance. Have you repented? Well, God did it. It's a gift. We look at all the means God sovereignly employed so that his grace might reach the Ninevites. He did. He, he employed the storm, the sailors, the, the lot that fell on Jonah, the big fish, even Jonah's disobedience. God uses that to bring revival to Nineveh. Look what God does in Nineveh. He brings about a great awakening. God will relent when his people repent. It has a little rhythmic quality to it, and I'd even intend that. <laughs> God will relent when his people repent. I mean for that to be a cute aphorism. It's true. We need not fear God will withhold forgiveness. I mean, Nineveh's repentance shows God's great love for all nations. I mean, these are pagans who are the enemies of God's people, and yet he loves them. He gets the gospel to them. And these are the enemies of God's people. This shows tells us a lot about the nature of God's love and his mercy. And Jonah knows this. Oh, does he ever know this. The wicked Ninevites repented, but Jonah, a prophet of God, of the people of God, did not. His true heart was revealed in the end. So now we come to chapter 4. where God schools Jonah about the wideness of his love. Here's what happens. You, you think it's, it's going to be great. Hallelujah, right? You expect it to say, man, there was celebration in heaven and on earth like never in the history of mankind. Here's what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Mm. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is, this not, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. What a crybaby, right? So are we. Take my life from me. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, it's kind of like Job, right? Do you do well to be angry? Well, he's mad. Oh, I do well. Listen to this. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He's hoping God's going to destroy the city probably, right? He's going to have a front row seat. He sat under, the, it, he sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. This is more or less than the desert. Big umbrella, God gives him. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Oh, his mood improves. We're just up and down, aren't we? Up and down. We ride a roller coaster through life. Man, Jonah, he's angry one minute and happy with God the next. Poor Jonah. We're angry with God one minute. Why am I undergoing? Why am I in this suffering? God, come on, I went to seminary. I've been in ministry. I've done all this stuff for you. And then he does something good. Like, See, you're just, that's what we love you. Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord. You're at home. You're lifting up your hand. You're great, you know. Jonah is, he's up, he's down, and now he's back up. It pleased Jonah because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, look what God does. God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Here we go, back down. The roller coaster goes down. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Wait a minute, you're happy a minute ago. Now you're angry again? The Lord said, you pity the plant. Get this. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came up into being in a night and perished in a night. I did it. I gave you that. And you're angry. You don't even pity the plant. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It's a strange ending, I grant, right? But it's abrupt. Jonah's angry at God's compassion. He gives all this grace to Jonah. And yet Jonah pities a plant 
but calls for the destruction of the Ninevites. Beloved, there is a wide gap between God's compassion and ours. If you don't know that, let this book remind you of that. If you've forgotten that. We tend to see divine justice and mercy as serving our interests. You see, we deserve mercy, right? We always deserve mercy. Poor me, woe is me, God. I, I deserve mercy because you just, you, you know my situation, right? Our enemies, <laughs> now they deserve your justice. Go get them, God. I'm innocent in this whole thing. They're guilty. Give them your justice. You know, we've talked a lot about what happens if we really got what was fair. If we told God, we want what's fair, all right? You don't know what you're signing up for, do we? We do if we read the Bible. But God is sovereign. His justice is impartial. And His forgiveness may extend to anyone. We see that here. God's enemies. His mercy comes to anyone. In fact, there's only God's enemies, right? Romans, Paul tells us we once God's enemies, now seated at His table. That's we sing that song and it's beautiful and it's right. His mercy may extend His forgiveness to anyone. Should that shape our forgiveness, our willingness to forgive others in the body of Christ or outside, those who sin against us? How quick should we be to love and to forgive? And yet we're, every one of us, I mean, I know this is true in my heart. I, I can hold a grudge of the best of them, right? Jonah learns here how wide God's love and mercy are. I mean, Jonah's national pride and ethnic particularism blinded him to the scope of God's redeeming love. Jonah learned that Israel did not have a monopoly on God's saving grace. God forgave the Ninevites, even though only a few years later they would destroy the northern kingdom, Israel, and besiege its capital city, Samaria. God knew they were going to, God would raise them and use them to judge his people, and yet he shows them mercy. Can you imagine, though, when the Ninevites, what happened in heaven when they repented? I mean, the New Testament tells us the angels rejoice over one sinner that comes to Christ. Can you imagine the party in heaven? Not with Jonah. He's not the party boy, is he? This uh, man who's been in a fish rodeo, he's not in the mood for it. He didn't rejoice. God, are you going to hang and let these people go simply because they repented in sackcloth and ashes? That's what he's saying. It really makes me mad. I'd just as soon die. He says it twice, in case God didn't hear it the first time, right? I mean, he'd been disobedient. Had himself been rescued by God's grace. Isn't that us far too often? We've been rescued. We've been delivered from death. We've been forgiven this massive load, this debt we could never pay. And yet... When it comes to mercy, we just sneer and move on. Jonah had received the grace of God, and the whale was grace. I mean, the, the fish was grace. I don't know if it was a whale. I'm not sure what it was. Big fish. And God was under no obligation to save the Ninevites, but God was under no obligation to rescue Jonah from the sea or the whale or anything else, right? And he is under no obligation to rescue us. That's why I say we're too quick to just say Jonah's an idiot. And we say, well, there for the grace of God go I. And that's true, but do we mean it? R.C. Sproul asked this question. I think it's right. I mean, we have no right as Christians to enjoy even the prospect of the destruction of the wicked. Sometimes I do. I think someone is so evil, they're beyond God's grace. I don't want God's grace to come to them. But we should have been destroyed. God didn't know us grace, else it wouldn't have been grace. I mean, we live moment to moment by God's grace and utter dependence upon Him. And if we've received grace, we should never be upset when we see God show grace to others, to those who've mistreated us, or those who've committed some heinous crime against humanity. But let's admit something. We're family here, can we do that? It's hard for us to see God lavishes grace on those who mistreated us. Oh yeah, they got a nicer house. They don't struggle financially. Look how they treated us. Or look how they treat the church. Look, boy, we just, they, they don't have all the struggles I do. Come on, you've said it and you know you have. Or they, yeah, look, look at, 
like one of my friends said one time they were having fertility issues, and Madonna was reported she was pregnant for the first second. She's very pro-abortion and all this stuff. So Madonna, the pop singer from back in the 80s, was having her second child. He said, I said, oh, yeah, God, that's really fair. And then he was struck with guilt over what he'd said and repented. He said, I just pulled my car and stopped right there and repent. But that's how we are, isn't it? How could you give mercy to that person when I'm not getting the things I think I deserve? I mean, we want to pray. You know, it's hard to, in the moment to pray that maybe a serial killer who's committed unspeakable acts against humanity, humanity will come to Christ, especially if it's affected us. We want God to forgive us, but not them. That's why I say Jonah is typical of all of us. We're Jonah in this story. This is the very opposite of how Jesus says we should treat our enemies. He says what? You should love your enemies. We must love our enemies or it shows that maybe we've not experienced the grace of God after all. If we don't love our enemies. How much more those in the body of Christ, maybe we just, maybe they annoy us or we don't get along particularly well, we don't have a lot in common, no, we love each other. How much more? You see, this moves up the scale. God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had absolutely no right to be angry. What do you have answered that question? Do you have any right to be angry about your circumstances? Do you? Like Job, last week, let me put you in the dock and you answer a few questions for me. Oh, redeemed one. Oh, one whom I've adopted into my family with all the rights and privileges thereof. We ever have any right to be angry when God shows mercy to our enemies? I'm, yes, I'm angry about the plant and the wind you sent to scorch me. And this is a Scirocco. This is the wind that comes off the Mediterranean. It just makes your skin so dry it begins to fall off of you. It's like a sandpaper or something it becomes. This is not just a, a hot breeze like we have here in Kentucky in July or August. This is what just... just God sent down on him, and the worm chewed away the plant and it died. He was angry. Angry. I think we learned that God, that Jonah cared more about the plant than people. He cared more about his own comfort than he did people. I mean, think about Paul and the contrast. Paul said he loved his people, his people, the Jews, so much. He went so far as to say, I would gladly be condemned to hell. I would be cut off from grace if you would save them, O oh Lord. Romans 9, he tells us that, doesn't he? Is that the beat of your heart, of my heart? Would we be willing to be accursed if we mean their salvation? And God's showing Jonah that he's showing us, and what he's showing us is that it's not right to care more about comfort and things than people. Jonah is every man. He's all of us who fail to keep the great commandment, which is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's, what, that's what we see here. This is, a, this is an illustration of a failure to keep the law of God, to keep the great commandment. You see how this all fits together, don't you? I hope. I mean, Jonah wasn't able to rejoice in the repentance of others. He became more concerned with his comfort than the eternal rest of human beings. Well, Jonah is a God-centered book. Centered on God. Centered on his love. Centered on our propensity to be fugitives from God. Ten times, ten times, ten different places. You can write this down if you want to. God demonstrates his sovereignty over creation and over weather, over plant and animal life in particular. And this is, this is particularly helpful in a lot of what happened in Kentucky and Tennessee and Missouri, Arkansas last week. You say, where was God in the storm? I was down there last week in Mayfield, and let me tell you, there's some people down there who believe God was in the storm. I mean, I was almost in worse shape than they were when I saw their, their town. It's like, hey, we believe, we're trusting God here. We know this is just stuff. We're all here, and we're thankful for it. I had three or four people tell me that. 
one just random person. It wasn't a, I was with a pastor down there, but another person just said that. So I worked with God, but thank you, friend, for us and being here. Maybe it's, I just couldn't imagine losing all my things and my comfort for a few days or a few months and imagine being happy. Maybe that was my problem. I had to really ask, search my heart when I was preparing this in light of having seen that. God is sovereign over it all. Think Jonah 1.4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. That tells me he's sovereign even over western Kentucky tornadoes. Jonah 1.7, the lot fell upon Jonah. He's sovereign over every roll of the dice. You're playing Monopoly. God doesn't care about that. Yes, he does. You go to jail. Well, you go to jail, you know, because God ordained it. You go to jail in Monopoly. Robert Proverbs said, the lot falls into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's rolling dice, right? God doesn't turn his back on that line. I'm really interested in that Monopoly game down there. I'm not good at Monopoly. I should take it up with God, I guess. That's sovereign. It's meticulous. That should make you comf- give you great comfort. Jonah 1.15, the sea stopped its raging. He's, he's sovereign over the storm, just like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. Same thing, right? 117, the Lord appointed a great fish. Wildlife. You don't kill that big buck on the first day of rifle season. Well, that's not God's will, right? Get over it. One of the fish to 117 to swallow Jonah, another one, swallow him alive. 210, the Lord commanded the fish, vomited out upon Jonah upon a dry land. 310, God saw their deeds, how they turned with their wicked way. So he's sovereign in salvation. Jonah 4 6, the Lord has appointed a plant. He's sovereign over plant life. Your garden's bad, well, take it up with God. He appointed a worm. God's sovereign over insects. Though I do want to talk to him about, you know, flies when we get to heaven someday. Always ask that, don't I? So I say, why does God make flies? You think, well, there is cleanup crew, right? And that's won't say any more about that. Finally, in four eight, God appointed the scorching east wind. He's sovereign over the wind, the Scirocco. Car called a Scirocco back in the eighties, right? It's a burning speed and wind. God appointed that. God's sovereign over every thing. That's been the we've we've seen that all through this series, haven't we? From Abraham to Esther to Job and now Jonah and everything in between. Jonah is about the so- a sovereign God in chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is a God of profound love and mercy. That's what this book is about. And that should comfort you or convict you or both at the same time. Remember, we asked the question of Job, God is sovereign, but is he good? And the younger generation, a lot of you are asking that. I think that's this generation's question my generation's was is this true and now I say it's not I believe it's true but is it good even my own kids we talked about that and I can tell what they struggle with is is it okay is it good okay sovereign we got that but is it good and Jonah, Jonah shows just as Job did that God is sovereign and he's good even better than Jonah expected him to be well I said Jesus believed Jonah was real I'm gonna close here because we always want to finish with Jesus don't we Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 38 to 42. And you listen, I've got it up on the board here. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We want proof. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He believed in Jonah, evidently. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah We can sing peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Through Jonah. And before we came to Christ, and I hear some of your testimonies, and I love that when we you join the church, man, oh glory. Wonderful. Because your situation is very much the same as Jonah's inside the belly of the fish. You're not going to come to Christ. 
You're going to seek him unless he seeks you. Seeker, you're a fugitive. But God loves fugitives. The Ninevites were fugitives and God loved them. God so loved the world. Jonah and the Ninevites. Abraham and Moses and Esther and Job. And you and me. Whosoever believes in him would not perish. But have everlasting life. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If there was hope for the Ninevites, there's hope for our world today. You say, man, I've just about given up on America. This country's going to the dogs. And indeed, it's, 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 it's headed there. Don't stop praying. Nineveh went from probably left of where we were fully repented overnight because it just took the preaching and a belief that salvation belongs to the Lord. Don't stop praying for our country and for this world. Right? Don't stop. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God can completely change everything instantly, just as it in Nineveh. And keep praying for your neighbors and your hard-hearted family members who seem like there's just no grace to be found here ever. And let us work, Christ fellowship, let us work in this season and in every season tirelessly to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember I said it's about evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Tirelessly to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his redeeming love to sinners with absolute confidence. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God, you are our only hope, both in life and in death. I pray you that, Lord, we would take the gospel, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, into the highways and the byways this season. God, we would see revival in this land, in our own hearts and in our own church. We'd see salvation come to this nation and all the nations that deny your name, God. Lord, we believe you can do it. You've done it before. We know that it just takes one word from you. Let there be light and there will be repentance and faith. That's all it takes. God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on this land, which you sent your son to be the Savior.